Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Squarespace, an all-in-one platform that makes it easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio. At Squarespace, you'll find a tremendous array of customizable designs with over 20 templates to choose from and a variety of style options so you can make your site look exactly how you want it to look. Squarespace is easy to use. It's fast, it's efficient, it's user-friendly, but... If for some reason you need a little help, Squarespace has a wonderful support team at the ready, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And remember, these people work in an office that has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. That is not a joke. Pause for a moment. Take a knee. Reflect on that. Packages start at just 8 bucks a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience. It will match the overall style of your website, so your content will always look great on every device, every single time. So what do you say, folks? Let's give this a shot. Start a trial right now with no credit card required and start building your website. Visit squarespace.com, and when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code OTHER10. Again, that offer code is OTHER10. You do that, you get 10% off, and uh, it's a terrific way to show your support for this program. So come on, go to squarespace.com and take advantage of this remarkable offer. It is available right now, and it's an excellent way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. Go and create one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me trying to think of what to say. This is you trying to think about what I just said. Thanks for listening. Good to be with you. Uh, my name is Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California, and I hope you're well. Jasmine Ward is today's guest. Uh, she won the National Book Award a couple of years ago for her novel, Salvage the Bones, and her new memoir, Men We Reaped, 
is now available from Bloomsbury. It's uh, very nice to have Jasmine here on the program, and she and I will be in conversation uh, shortly. And, uh, you know, speaking of awards, the uh, Nobel Prize in Literature was just handed out uh, last week, a few days ago. And uh, Alice Monroe uh, was the recipient, the Canadian author. Most of you probably know that by now. And uh, the reason I bring it up is because it was fascinating to me to watch the reaction, particularly the social media response, and uh, particularly within the literary community. A lot of people were really happy for Alice Monroe, who I must confess uh, I have not read a whole lot of. But uh, what I do know, and in reading these interviews with her and these profiles of her in the aftermath of her uh, victory, she certainly seems like a lovely woman, and it's always nice when a good, a humble, kind, hardworking person experiences good fortune. But uh, what's interesting to me is not necessarily her triumph, uh, but rather people's reactions to her triumph, how excited everybody gets about uh, awards. These awards, uh, they really do mean something. They have an impact on per- on uh, perception, is what I mean to say. These awards for art, like, a, you know, Academy Awards, Nobel Prizes, Pulitzer Prizes, uh, MacArthur Genius Grants, which, which might be my favorite, <laughs> Golden Globes, <laughs> whatever, you know, the National Book Award. And you know what? Listen, I, you know, I'm not uh, above this. Like Jasmine Ward is a past recipient of the National Book Award, uh, as I mentioned uh, just a second ago. And you're going to hear the two of us talk about uh, this very thing in just a moment. Uh, And and, uh, I guess my point is that the fact that she's a National Book Award winner, it does have an uh, an effect on my brain. I confess this. And this interests me. (laughs) I think I take uh, her more seriously because of it. I think I'm more concerned about my performance uh, as an interviewer. Uh, I think that I consider her uh, superior to me intellectually and uh, spiritually. You know what I'm saying? It, it gets your attention somehow. And, and why? And, and I mean, less like, you know, I see the necessity of awards as, a, you know, like a way of shining a light on really good work and on publishing in general. Because the fact is, you know, these kinds of awards uh, draw media attention and uh, they celebrate books, and they generate publicity, and people tend to care about this stuff. They just do. They talk about it. You know, much like they pay attention to uh, top ten lists, (laughs) or any kind of list online, in all of their various permutations. It's some sort of, uh, like, deeply hardwired animal instinct. We like to be told what's good, We like when things are rated. And, you know, everybody loves a winner. But, you know, there's also an aspect to these kinds of awards that, to me, uh, you know, feels ridiculous. Just the simple fact that there's a competition and, and then a winner among artists. It feels, you know, deeply silly in a lot of ways, which I think most of us recognize. And I think that, uh, you know, this silliness 
this obnoxiousness is most uh, intense at the Oscars. <laughs> or I don't know. It seems to be, I mean, that's the biggest event, right? It's the most watched. And, and, and by the way, I love to watch the Oscars because uh, I'm a hypocrite. I love an award show. It's so grotesque and unseemly. And the speeches and the reaction shots, especially of the people who don't win. <laughs> you know, it's a hideous spectacle and a ghastly lens on humanity in so many ways. And uh, the only time, speaking of the Oscars, uh, the only time when participants uh, in the Oscars, for my money, have behaved in a truly proportionate manner relative to the event itself uh, was when Trey Parker and Matt Stone dressed in drag and uh, dropped acid when they were nominated in the uh, musical category for South Park the movie. <laughs> and that really did happen. That's not uh, apocryphal. They really did uh, dress in drag and take LSD. And that's the way they attended the Oscars. And I think that's the only way that anyone should ever attend the Oscars. Assuming you have the mental like fortitude <laughs> to uh, walk the red carpet and bear the heat of that particular spotlight. So am I suggesting that Alice Monroe should ingest uh, hallucinogens before giving her Nobel speech in Stockholm? Yes. And Alice, if you're listening, please do this. Do it for Canada. <laughs> um, the only other thing that I want to mention about this uh, regarding people's reactions is just like the intensity of response or the intensity of the responses. And like this kind of like uh, a lot of people seem to be reacting as if they really, you know, know this woman. And you know what? I get it. If you're really a, like a, a huge fan of her work, uh, you're cheering for her and you feel a part of it somehow. But the, the cynical part of me wonders if there's not some sort of weird narcissism at work for a lot of people who are issuing these public uh, hosannas and commentaries about Alice Monroe that were going up all over uh, Twitter and Facebook. You know, as if uh, perhaps they were trying to somehow steal a few uh, photons of the spotlight or to uh, publicly associate themselves with magnificent triumph. I don't know. Like, why does everybody always have to comment on everything? <laughs> Seems weird. And, uh, did you see Brett Easton Ellis's reaction on Twitter? Uh, his Twitter feed fascinates me. It's pretty unfiltered if you haven't read it before. And, uh, he's not afraid to give an opinion. And in the aftermath of Alice Monroe's uh, Nobel Prize triumph, he tweeted uh, multiple times and called her overrated and said that the uh, Nobel Prize is, quote, uh, a joke and has been for ages. <laughs> Which, you know, strikes me as some sort of uh, combination of, like, dark humor, uh, anger, and uh, possibly uh, jealousy. Right? Because, uh, let's face it, Brett Easton Ellis wants to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. Yes, he does. Every writer does. Every writer uh, of uh, a literary bent wants to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. And I think, uh, deep down, Brett Easton Ellis knows that he will never win it because 
you know, the Nobel Committee doesn't tend to hand out its prize to uh, deviant people. (laughs) Or uh, to put it another way, uh, I don't think that the Nobel Committee tends to hand out its prize to people who have done more than $50,000 worth of cocaine in their lifetime. (laughs) I could be wrong. Maybe there's a few exceptions uh, over the years. But that's my general feeling. And I'm not bagging on Brett Easton Ellis either. I like his books. And I feel he's made uh, a significant contribution to American letters. I just don't think he's going to win the Nobel. I think it would be funny if he did. He might dress in drag and drop acid in Stockholm. Uh, But I don't think he thinks he's going to win it either. And I think that's why... He was taking pot shots at it. Or at least it's part of the reason why. He's going down swinging. And it's worth noting, too, that he did the exact same thing to David Foster Wallace uh, a while back when uh, when the biography of Wallace by D.T. Max came out. You know, I remember on his Twitter feed he said some awful things. <laughs> uh, you know, just really unfiltered criticisms of David Foster Wallace. And I guess, uh, ultimately, you might say that Brett Easton Ellis is deeply offended by literary sainthood. Maybe that's it. And you know what? Like, sainthood, uh, when you think about it, it is kind of bullshit. Like, how many, how many human beings are really worthy of sainthood? It's like probably four. And, and, and like, you know, broadly speaking, I don't think it's helpful to, to deify people like this because, uh, a it's, it's false. It creates this false perception and B it gives the rest of us a complex, you know, it gives me a complex. There's nothing more, uh, rele- you know, relieving to me than to uh, learn about the dark side of a saint. Because it humanizes them. So I I guess what I'm saying is I need some dirt on Alice Monroe immediately. (laughs) I don't have any. And so right now, uh, based on recent media coverage, she exists in my mind uh, as like Mrs. Claus. It's like she's some kind of uh, angelic robot uh, super genius of profound depth and sensitivity And if we were to make eye contact, she would immediately know everything about me. And for reasons beyond my understanding, I would start to weep spontaneously. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Jesmyn Ward. Her new memoir uh, is incredibly powerful. It's called Men We Reaped, and it is available now from Bloomsbury. It's a great pleasure and honor to have her here on the program. So uh, let's get to it, shall we? This is Jesmyn Ward, and her new memoir, once again, is called Men We Reaped. I, I want to talk to you uh, first about something that uh, I guess by comparison to your uh, memoir is, is uh, trivial, but uh, the National Book Award, mm-hmm. which you won uh, at a young age. And I'm interested in hearing uh, your feelings on that experience. Like, What was it like to win that? It was, it was surreal. You know, I, I think, you know, I'm the type of writer... Um, and I know that all writers aren't like this. You know, some writers are really confident, you know, and they know their strengths and they, um, you know, and they, and they, when they have a good, uh, when they have good odds of winning things, like they, they realize that. Um, I didn't think that I would win the National Book Award at all. I was totally, of course, completely surprised when I won and, of course, was surprised when I was even nominated. Um, you know, I convinced myself when they when they called me about the nomination, and then um, you know, and and, uh, and then you know, asked me for my personal inf- information. And I gave it to them, and then um, and then sort of told me that I couldn't tell anyone that I had been nominated. I convinced myself that I um, I was convinced that I, that it was an identity fraud scam, and that someone had just gotten my <laughs> social security number. So and, wait, 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 wait. Why couldn't you tell anyone that you'd been nominated? I... They, because they don't they. Um, they want the public announcement to be the first time ah, okay. that everyone knows who's nominated for the award. So, like, I couldn't tell my family, I couldn't tell, you know, my pub- my publisher, my agent, my editor, um, you know, none of my friends. So, yeah, so I just thought I was, yeah, I was nervous. And then when they announced my name, well, see, now it's different because they do it differently. They announce a long list, I guess, is the first year they've done that. And then, I guess, they'll shorten, you know the long list and put out a, you know, a short list. So, um, but that's how it was, you know, it wasn't like that for me, um, in 2011. So, yeah, so I was totally and completely surprised. Um, I didn't think that I would win. I told my, I didn't even try to get my mom, um, to come because I was so convinced, um, well, no, okay, and so wait a minute. Win. There's a there's a ceremony because like that. Yeah, there's a ceremony. So you go to this mm-hmm. ceremony, uh, mm-hmm. and, and you're sitting there, and it's like the Oscars. They announce. I mean, just in terms of format, obviously it's not on like national television with a billion people watching, but like mm-hmm. they have some sort of host, and then they announce the winner, and you go up there, and they give you a medal. They give you a trophy. A trophy. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah, and it's very heavy. It doesn't look heavy, but it's damn heavy. Okay, so take us inside that moment. You're sitting there. Who announces it? What happens uh, to you internally? How do you accept, etc.? I can't even remember. I, ha- I hate to admit this, and it makes me sound like an awful person, but I can't even remember who announced it. Um, I, what I do remember is that Nikki Finney had won for poetry right before, you know, they, you know, a few minutes before they you know, announce the fiction, right? And she had, I don't know if you've ever seen that speech. I think it's on YouTube. But she'd given such a, 
an amazing speech, right, where she talked about the fact that black people were the only people, um, you know, who, like, for us, it was against the law for us to learn how to read and to write. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and doing so could result, you know, in death, right? And and she, you know, she made that point in her speech, and there was something, and, and, it, and I knew that, you know, factually I knew that, but I think it really hit me emotionally at that moment, um, you know, because I was there, because Nikki Finney was there, and it just felt... I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, just, I really, the weight of history, I really felt it then, you know, in that room. Um, and so I was already really emotional, right? And I was trying not to cry during her speech because it was so amazing. Um, and because she was really, she was, I felt like she was speaking to me. Um, and so I held it together until, you know, until the fiction, until they began to, you know, until they announced that they would, the, you know, they would announce the fiction award, right? And um, and at that point, I'm, I was so anxious that I, that I couldn't even think of anything anymore. And I just kept telling myself, "You can breathe through anything. You can breathe through anything. You can breathe through anything. You can breathe. Just breathe. Just breathe. Just breathe." And and so I just kept. I was just focusing on my breath because I couldn't. I couldn't deal with what was you know with what was happening. I was so nervous, you know, um, and uh, <laughs> and so. They um and so actually I'd heard a funny a funny story like only you know I mean maybe like thirty minutes before they announced the um the you know the fiction finalists and the winner so one of the people at my table was telling me this story about how they had been to the National Book Awards one year with an author and so because and they were telling me this story because they wanted me to be mindful of how I would react um, if I didn't win. You know, and they, and because they said that the author that they went to, you know, that they, you know, went along with to the National Book Awards, when that author found out that they didn't win, they burst into tears and began sobbing very loudly. No. Um, For real? Yes. yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so, you know, so I just heard that story, and so I, I, I'm thinking, oh, God, so how am I going to deal with this? You know, and then and I thought, okay, I'm just going to, Smile and let's congratulate the person that wins, and um, and that's what I'm going to do. You okay, know? but wait, 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 wait for just a second because you're mm-hmm. sitting there. You've already, you've heard this emotional speech. They're getting ready mm-hmm. to announce the fiction winners. You've known that you're on this list and that you're a nominee for weeks. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. assuming. And so, uh, be honest. Like you, you really wanted to win, right? Did you really want it, or were you just happy to be nominated? You know, because that's what people always just, say. I was just happy to be nominated because I didn't because I didn't think that I had any chance at all of winning. I, I thought I had zero chance of winning. None. Because my, my book, you know, like, some people had, um, you know, there had been some attention that had been paid to my book, but, I mean, it hadn't been, it hadn't been reviewed by the Times. It, you know, it's gotten some reviews, but no, no really big, like, high-profile pro, high reviews until it was nominated, you know, for the award. Um, and so, you know, I just, I felt like a, I felt like an underdog, you know, I was like, there's no way, you know, I mean, and there were other books on the list that year that had gotten a lot of attention, a lot of praise, a lot of people were talking about them. I just thought that, you know, that my book, that I should just be happy that my book was just included, you know, on the list of nominees, because I just didn't think that there was that kind of award-worthy buzz around my book that that there was, you know, around the other books, you know, in, in the 
in the, in the category. So, so yeah, so I so, didn't. I uh, didn't think that I was going to win at all. Okay, so they say your name, and then what? You just go into like a blackout. <laughs> they, they said my name, and I put my hands over my face, and my, and I didn't move. I just sat in my chair with my hands over my face, and then my publicist jumped up and grabbed me by the shoulders, and stood behind me, grabbed me by the shoulders, and began shaking me and said, Jasmine, you won. You have to get, you have to get up, <laughs> and you have to go to the podium. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. And so at this point, I'm really trying very hard not to. I'm, sh- I'm in shock. But, of course, I feel this sudden, you know, overwhelming emotion, and I'm trying very hard not to cry. You know, I'm like, I can't. You know, I just, I can't, I cannot cry. I just need to go up there and do this, you know, give my speech, and then, then I can come back and sit down. Um, and so I, and so I wa- walk, took the long walk up to the podium, and the way that they had the table set up, I don't know if this is the deal, this is how it was every year, but that year the way that they had the table set up is that they were really close together. Um, and so it was sort of hard, you know, you really had to maneuver your way up to the stage. And we were sitting, I was sitting at a table that was like all the way in the back. You know, so I had to maneuver my way wait, all wait, the way wait, through. Wait, 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 you're a nominee. They said they put you in the back. Yeah, me and Nikki Feeney were sitting in the back. <laughs> What's that? Oh my! God. I, I don't know. Our tables were in the back. That for is. Some weird, we were right, sitting right next to each other in the in the back. Oh my god! Um, on we the should... back, like right side of the, uh, you know, of the of the venue. So yeah, so I maneuvered up to the front, got up, you know, on the stage, um, managed to read my you know, my, uh, my speech, you prepared, um, you prepared remarks. I did my prepared. I did. Um, just in case, you know, and I, and I wasn't going to do, I wasn't, um, planning to really prepare anything because, um, but then I thought, but then I had was, but then I heard about other speeches that had been given in, in previous years by previous winners. And it seemed like, you know, like it wasn't just the question of going up there and saying, you know, you know, thank you, God bless, good night. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> that just wasn't an option. I'd like to you thank know, people, my agent. Exactly. Like people gave a really, you know, detailed, you know, thank you speeches. They, you know, they made statements about literature and about writing and. Right, right. You're writers. You're, you're. I mean, you're. When you win the National Book Award, you. I think immediately become a major American author, like capital mm-hmm. M, capital A, yeah. capital or. Yeah, capital M, capital A, capital A. But um, you stand up there, you give the speech. Uh, obviously, a lot changes for you, or I would assume a lot changes for you because of that victory. And uh, did things change in a way that feels concrete? Like, you know, what happened after that for you? Mm-hmm. Um, so after I wandered off the wrong side of the stage um, <laughs> and then was escorted over to the uh, – you know, to the red carpet where there were tons of photographers and they began taking pictures and then immediately spoke to, you know, several reporters um, and journalists from different, um, you know, from different publications. Um, then, you know, things got, re- I mean, then suddenly, you know, people want to talk, more more people, many more people want to talk to me about my work. Um, and, uh, you know, and suddenly, you know, like you're saying, like there's a, there's a major amount of attention, right. That's brought to you. Um, you know, people are actually, you know, they actually ask, care about your opinion and ask you, you know, ask you 
questions and want to hear you speak. Um, and before, I don't really think that that was the case. Um, so, you know, and then, of course, it makes something like this, right? When you bring out another book, um, it makes that experience very different because it's, um, you know, because people actually come out to hear you read. And um, Yeah, so like you know, on your tour, are you getting like big crowds? I am. I'm getting really good, great, great crowd. And what? And what's the? And what's the makeup? I'm curious. Like, are you getting mostly black audiences to come out? Like, who's reading you? And is it surprising to you? Like the the kinds of readers that you're finding? Um, it's not surprising me, and I, I think the reason it's not surprising me now is because, and and I'm getting a really mixed audience. You know, I'm getting black readers. I'm getting white readers. I mean, readers all ages. You know, people, kids coming with their parents, teenagers coming with their parents, and then you know, grandparents that are getting me to sign books for their grandchildren, and they've all, they, you know, they're also reading the book. So I'm getting, you know, you know, the the audience is, you know, is pretty varied for for um, for this book. But I, but you know, I really, I was sh- surprised with the paperback publication of Salvage the Bones. Like that's when. I was surprised at, at, about my audience, you know, at the fact that there were people that were reading my book who had, n- who, you know, who shared nothing in common, you know, with me and my background or with the back or with the characters. And yet they were reading Salvage the Bones and they were, and something in it was speaking to them, you know, and they were identifying with these characters and they were investing in these characters. I mean, I think that, you know, that that what clarified that for me was my experience. Um, I actually went to, you know, through Bloomsbury, you know, because Bloomsbury is my publisher. And then, of course, you know, they're, they're based in the U.K., you know, and then, of course, they also, um, you know, have, um, you know, they also have offices in Australia and in New Zealand. And so when, um, when Salvage was published as a paperback, then I went to Australia and New Zealand for the Auckland Writers Festival and then the um and then the Sydney Writers Festival. And and that experience, especially when I was in Auckland, um, really made me aware of um, you know, of how how different people could be, you know, even, you know, the, the here in, in New Zealand, um, you know, the, the people that were reading my book had no sorts of like touchstones, you know, even in the way that you had, right? Um Right. But yet Something about the book resonated with them, and in some in some respects, you know, I kept running into people who would talk to me about the Christchurch earthquake. Right, you know, I was and, just going to say. say, yeah, and say that 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 that's what you know really um, drew them to the book, and um, and and made it seem very familiar to them, um, you know, because they were struggling with the aftermath of the earthquakes and the the fact that it was so hard for them to rebuild because they were constantly hit by aftershocks, and so. That experience, you know, that really, um, you know, really made me see that, um, you know, that people who, uh, you know, who I didn't have anything in common with were coming to my work and, and finding, finding, a, finding a commonality. So did that, was that something that when you sat down to write Salvage or when you sit down to write uh, Men We Reaped, like, is that on your mind? Like, were you thinking, I want to reach out, I want to make people who don't? Uh, have any frame of reference for my experience understand or like who were you writing to like did it come as a great surprise that when you know when you show up to a reading and somebody from like you know North Dakota is like completely 
in sync, you know, with what you're doing? Like, what was, what was it like when you were actually writing the books? Did you have a sense of how they might hit? Um, n- not really. I mean, I didn't have a sense of how they would hit. I did, I knew that I, that I wanted to reach, that I wanted to reach people that weren't like me. You know, I knew that because I, because I felt like the part of the reason, you know, that I chose to, um, you know, to write about, say, the poor family that I do in Salvage the Bones, right? This is a family that, you know, that doesn't have any resources to leave. And then, and so they don't leave and they have to live through Katrina. Um, and then, you know, deal with, they have to live with, with that, right? That experience. And, um, and I just, I wanted people who, you know, who who knew nothing about the kind of people that I was writing about and who only saw them, you know, maybe on the news, thought about them in reference to New Orleans and Katrina, right, and maybe, um, you know, and, and maybe their impression of those kind of people, you know, was that, you know, they were stupid for not leaving. I mean, because that's part of what I was hearing in the conversation that was taking place after Katrina, right? I mean, that's what I heard that, you know, people were saying that, right? Um so I, I wanted to counteract some of that, you know. Um, and so I did want people who, you know, people who, weren't, who aren't familiar with, you know, who I am or where I'm from or the kind of people that I live with and grew up with, I wanted them to, to read the book. Um, well, and I, see these people as human beings. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think about uh, when I was reading uh, your book this morning, like what kept popping in my head, I think just because it's, it's you know, in the news a lot right now, is like mm-hmm. all of this, uh, you know, the Obamacare thing and the Tea Party and what, like mm-hmm. the, the racial underpinnings of all this uh, anti-Obama stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff about people, you know, all this, all this complaining about people abusing the welfare system, which I think, mm-hmm. you know, does happen in instances, but that's such a gross oversimplification and to have somebody um painting a nuanced portrait of these places and these lives which are so often forgotten is, is crucially important and i mean i hope that that you know that 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 what i'm working on that you know and that my writing is working against you know is working against that and it's adding our voices to that conversation um because i because i do i agree with you i think that that you know that that has been the case, and that we've in that, you know, and that the poor are often sort of talked about instead of talked to. You know, I, I don't know, and I just it makes me angry because I think about you know I think about the shutdown, I think about Obamacare, and I, I know I have family members, I have people in my life that would greatly benefit from from having access to health care. You know, they don't have any health care. You know, these are people that, you know, that when they get sick, instead of being able to see a doctor, they go to the emergency room. And then you know, and then they, and then they, you know, gain thousands and thousands, thousands of dollars worth of debt, and then the bill collectors start calling. You know what I'm saying? Like, not only not only that, but it costs everybody. You know, it, it winds up costing uh, people who do have insurance money. It would just be yeah. better. It would be better for everybody if we found a way yeah. to cover people. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then it makes me angry too because, you know, because of the shutdown and of all the programs that are affected, like WIC. You know, I know families that are on WIC. They need that. That's, you know, food for women, infants, and children. And yet, because I just feel like there are very real costs, you know, to these, you know, the real costs of these decisions, right, that these policymakers are, you know, are, are, are 
enacting, and I don't think that they see that, and that makes me very angry, and that's something I think that I'm trying to, that I hope that my work does too, right? That it, uh, I don't know, that it... it humanizes. They, yeah, humanize them. Right. And uh, just to get into the book, uh, I, I think it might be helpful, you know, for my listeners to hear you, if you can, briefly describe what it's about, um, so that you know, we can have kind of a broad overview before we get into the, some of the details. Okay, so from 2000 to 2004, five young black men from my community all died in different ways. Um, you know, and I come from a really small rural community in su- South Mississippi, right? And, um, and so the first young man to die was my brother. He died in two, in fall 2000, October of 2000. He was hit by a drunk driver. Um, and then, and then you know, my next, uh, the next person that I was my friend, he commit, he shot himself. He died by suicide. The third um, person to die um, was my cousin, actually, and he was in a car accident. The car that he was in hit a train, and he couldn't get out of the car, and he died. Um, and then the fourth person to die was my friend, and uh, he was actually shot. Um, someone waited for him to come home from work, and they shot him. Um, his murder has never been solved, and, um, you know, it's, some people in the community think it's because he agreed to testify against drug dealer, and that's what was, you know, and that he was killed to silence him, basically. Um, and then the fifth person to die was um, was another of my friends, who had a hereditary heart condition, um, but was also um, struggling with addiction, and um, and he ended up dying um, from a heart attack. Um, but you know, so some people think that that it was that the you know his addiction, you know, aggravated his heart condition. Good God! So uh, first of all, my condolences. That's a lot. Uh, here's a question that occurred to me uh, as I was reading uh, the book is, do you think that you have post-traumatic stress disorder? <laughs> uh, and I, you know, I, I feel like loss is always hard, but to have this many tragic losses, these are young people dying before their time in a variety of really tragic ways. And to have all of that loss in your life, I have, how do you deal with it? Do you feel like you know, you have PTSD. Have you ever thought of that? Um, I have thought about it. The funny thing is, is I mean, it's not funny, but um, but I was told a long time ago. One of my friends told me that they thought that I had PTSD, but not in well because of at that point my brother had died, um, and so this was after two thousand, and I actually lived in New York um, when the attack on the World Trade Center occurred. Oh, my God. And so they were saying, they that's why they were saying that. They thought that because I'd lived, you know, I'd lived through those two things that, that um, you know, that they thought that I had PTSD. And then you add on, you know, me losing my, <laughs> you know, the, the rest, you know, the rest of my friends um, in those ways. And then also living through Katrina. So, <laughs> so I probably do. I, <laughs> I haven't been diagnosed. I don't know. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm worried about you. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot to bear. But uh, you know, uh, I guess the natural question to go from there is, uh, you know, do you feel better after writing this book? Like, was it healing to 
put this down in in words? Mm-hmm. Um, I think in some ways it was. You know, like I think it was helpful for me to not only write about, you know, write about my brother and my friend's death, um, their lives and their deaths, but also, you know, so in between the chapters about my, my brother and my friends, there are chapters um, about my life, you know, and, um, you know, my, my sort of childhood and adolescence um, and my teenage years, right? Um, and then, of course, during those chapters, you know, I also, you know, write about write about my brother and write about my sisters and my mom and my dad. Um, and so I had to do, you know, when I was writing this book, I, you know, I, I, um, I had to not only write about the events, but also try to make um, different connections, I guess, like different narrative connections between, um, you know, between. Um, say, you know, my actions or somebody else's actions. And, and then, you know, I had to try to figure out, like, you know, what I was thinking at the time, what that thinking was informed by, what they were thinking, what they were reacting against. Um, so I think that that the process of doing that what, um, was helpful for me. It was really painful to do, um, you know, because I kept having all these revelations about, you know, about, that concerns like how I acted or how I reacted to things or how, you know, people that I loved, how they acted. Um, and those revelations were really painful, but I think, um, but I think that I'm better for realizing them. Um, how did you, how did you remember all this stuff? Cause like I'm a person who has a terrible memory and as I'm reading your book, like the memories and the depictions of these scenes from your childhood are so detailed and rich uh, I imagine, like, the process of writing probably stirred up memories that you didn't realize you had. But do you, are you a person who has, like, a really good memory? Um, it's funny. I, I feel like <laughs> like I have a really good memory uh, concerning my childhood and my adolescence, you know, and through my teenage years, basically sort of before my, you know, my brother died. And, um, and then even, you know, when my friends were dying, 2000, 2000, you know, 2004 like I'm still my memories are still pretty clear but then as I get older and I don't know if it's a function of getting old I mean I'm not old I'm 36 right but I still I feel like my memory is getting worse me too (laughs) um as I age you know and I'm and I feel like you know the the years that are closest to me have the hardest time remembering you know remembering things with a certain sense of clarity Whereas when I think back, you know, to when I was, you know, a teenager in my early 20s, I'm much better at remembering, you know, then. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think back, I guess there's, I mean, there are certain things. Adolescence is such a intensely emotional time that, mm-hmm. uh, and your brain is, you know, it's pretty alive. I think it's maybe the most alive that it ever is in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that stuff can stick. But uh, do you ever, do you look, I mean, when you were going through the edits for this book, like, did you ever find yourself questioning? Like, how do you, how did you check yourself, you know? Well, I think that that, 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 that did happen, you know, because you do, you have to, um, you know, you do wonder that. Um, but then you remember that memoir is about your memory of events and your recollection of events, you right. know, and that memory is always subjective and, 
you know, that two people will remember the same event in completely different <laughs> different ways. And so I just sort of accepted that that would be the case. Some of the stuff, though, I, you know, I did do some research for this. You know, I, um, if I was unclear about something, you know, I would ask my mom, I would ask my sisters, um, I would ask, you know, especially during the chapters that I wrote about the young men, there's a lot that I didn't know, you know, so a lot of that I, I had to, um, you know, I had to research a lot of that. I had to ask their family members and their friends. And I was going to ask you. Tell me these stories. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, like, were, were there family uh, and friends? Uh, did you ever have any concerns about telling these people stories? Did you did you get any pushback from relatives, or did you feel concern or uh, trepidation at at writing this stuff? Uh, yes, I did. You know, every page for me was um. Every page for me was a struggle. Because, you know, I feel like the genre, the form demands the truth, right? So I knew that I had to tell the truth. But then on every page, I was struggling with this idea, right? Okay, so I know I have to tell the truth, but how much of the truth am I going to tell, you know? And I know that, you know, I, some of my family members and some of the family members of the young men, you know, and, and friends, you know, family members of the young men, like, they're not happy with what I've written, you know? They're not happy that I'm... That I've revealed these, you know, talked that I'm revealing these secrets and talking about these secrets, um, and uh, and you know, and that's you know that that's rough. But I, but in the end, you know, like if I'm going to decide to write a memoir, right? If I'm going to decide to write about my recollection of these events, but then also include, you know, my time, you know, with my brother, with my cousin, with my friends, um, in in that record, in that memoir then I have to, and if I'm going to, you know, talk about these really painful truths, then I have to, I have to believe in what the book is attempting to do, you know, and, and, and I do, you know. Um, what is the I book believe, attempting to do? I think the book is attempting to, it, it, I think, you know, I think, I think there are things that it is attempting to do that I don't even realize. <laughs> I don't even realize them yet, right? But one of the things that I'm clear about, you know, that I understand that the book is attempting to do, is I, I is that the book is attempting to, um, to, to humanize the young men that I'm writing about, and to make people begin to ask questions, you know, and to really talk about. Um, talk about their stories and to talk about these issues that, you know, that I was living with and my family was living with that my, that, you know, that my friends, you know, that they were, that they were living with. Right. And so, for example, there's a part in the book, this is a spoiler, but there's a part near the end of the book where I recount this conversation that I had with my brother. Right. He was 14. We were standing out on the street. It's wintertime. And he told me that he was selling crack. Right. I didn't write about that. You know, and, and some people in my family have read that really negatively, you know. Um, and I have to it, try to explain to them that the reason that I revealed that conversation, that I recounted that conversation, is not was not to shock. And, you know, it's not to titillate. Um, but the reason that I revealed it is because I want, re- because at that point, the readers probably love my brother, you know. They probably they probably feel some affection for him, um, and so when they get to this moment when he reveals this thing that he's doing, that they would, in in, in another circumstance, 
hear that somebody is like say selling crack at 14 and immediately condemn that person I think it's harder for the reader in that moment to condemn to condemn my brother because they they already see him as human, right? Well, right, right. And I was gonna I was gonna say too, like there's other aspects of um, you know, uh, I guess like you know, uh, black culture in the South uh, in these small towns, especially you know, mm-hmm. Gulf Coast towns. Um, but also speaking more broadly, when when you think about things like uh, the, you know, persistent poverty. Uh, when you think about broken families, uh, lots of people growing up without their fathers in the house, I think that you know it can be easy from the outside looking in. And I was alluding to this earlier for people to say, you know, well, what's up with that? Get it together. And you know, I think that uh, by telling these stories and uh, you know really breathing life into these characters and making them like showing them in all of their complexity, it, it uh, adds a measure of depth to those conversations, which I think is sorely needed. Good. I mean, that, that's what I want, right? I want people to start asking these questions about, you know, like concerning that incident with my brother. Like, why would a 14-year-old think that that's okay, that that's a viable choice? You know, right. Why does he think that's his best choice? Why is it okay that this 14-year-old black kid can make that kind of decision? But, say, if we heard the same story about a 14-year-old white kid, say, who was a little who, you know, who came from a more, like a money background, you know, or, or more stable background, then we'd be up in arms. You know what I'm saying? I, I just, yeah, I just, I want people to start asking questions about this and, and start really, and, and begin questioning their assumptions, really. Right. And um, I want to talk, I want to talk uh, about uh, your community specifically, Delisle. I am pronouncing that correctly, right? Actually, it's Delisle. Delisle, okay. So mm-hmm. Delisle, Mississippi, uh, you refer to it as a wolf. Uh, why is that? Well, because, you know, when I... Because it before it was called Delil, it's named Delil after a French settler, um, before it was called Delil, the people that lived there called it Wolf Town. And I don't think there are any wolves um, there. Um, there not anymore. Coyotes. Yeah, not anymore. <laughs> so I, and I just thought that that was a really interesting... Um, I just I thought that fact was really fascinating to me, and it made me begin sort of thinking um, about wondering about whether and you know when I looked at say my family's story, my brother's story, you know these young men that I loved and lost like their stories, it made me begin to wonder. It made me begin to see that place as as a menacing thing, you know, as it's alive you know, menacing thing, living menacing thing. And so, um, and then I thought about the fact that it was called Wolf Town, and then it made me wonder, you know, it made me sort of draw that association um, when I was writing about it. Well, and what's interesting to me, too, is that, you know, for all of its menace and all of the heartache that exists there for you and for so many people, you know, who who live there, uh, when you leave it, you're homesick for it. And now you live Mm -hmm. back there, correct? Yep, I do. So what brings you back? Um, family brings me back. Um, I always tell this story, but it's true. It's a true story, and I think it gives people a clear understanding of what I mean by family. I'm not just speaking of my immediate family. Um, I have a very large extended family. And when I say I have a very large extended family, this is what I mean. If I just count my mom's mom, so my my maternal grandmother, if we just count her sisters, their kids, and their kids, 
and their kids, there are over 200 of us. Good Lord. Yeah, and that's just a quarter of my family. So I have a very large extended family. You know, Delilah is the kind of place where the families are very large, and and there's been a lot of intermarrying, so they're related to each other too. So in very peculiar ways, like family and community are really intertwined here, you know, in that place. And I am... And I miss that when I'm away. Do you find, like, in the aftermath of moving to Deli- uh, DeLil, uh, after, you know, being away, you went to Stanford, uh, you lived in New York City, uh, went to Michigan as well. Uh, you know, there's the old saying that you can't go home again. Like, what's, I mean, you've changed so much. Like, how is it different to be there now? Um. You know, it's not the same home that I left behind. I think because I did change, and it changed, you know, because of the passage of time. And then also, you know, Hurricane Katrina had a really big impact, too. Um, you know, I mean, it's... um, It's... I, I think it's... Okay, so the, the economy on the coast is... um largely dependent dependent upon tourism, but then also dependent um, upon casinos. You know, we have a booming casino industry on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Sure. And, and, um, and that really, you know, became the case, especially after Hurricane Katrina, um, when the boats, I mean, before they had to be out on barges, and it seemed like it was more trouble than it was worth for them to operate because of all the you know, the, the rules and regulations that they had to operate under. But then after Hurricane Katrina, they were permitted to build on land, right? So there was this, it seems like there was a land grab, right? Um, you know, because Katrina came in and demolished everything. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so now the economy there depends a lot on, you know, on casinos and on gambling. Um, and I feel like that that, you know, that that, 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 that in some ways that that's been really negative, you know, for where I'm from, um, you know, because it's, you know, because I, I just, you know, that's an industry that, um, you know, that preys on. Yeah, it be, like, oh, I think be, it's sad. Yeah. There's a lot of sadness yeah. in a casino. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think that that, you know, that that's affected my home and, and, and of course, is, you know, has more like real world um, implications because people are becoming addicted to gambling. People, it it encourages addiction to alcohol, I think, and other drugs, right? Sure. And this is definitely, you know, becoming becoming the case. I mean, people are, you know, losing the homes that they've lived in their entire lives, with their their families have lived in. You know, they're taking out second mortgages so they can. Um, you know, and and then the proceed, and then they end up, you know, wasting the money and like gambling it all away. I mean, this is, you know, and, and then of course all of this is compounded by, you know, by the by the by the economic reality in the rest of the country. You yes. know, um, so I don't know. So my 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 home has changed in in some ways for the worse. Um, you know, in some ways it's changed for the better. I feel like the kids in my nephew's generation, at least the young women, that there's that there's a clear expectation for them, like that more of them feel like when they graduate that school is actually an option, you know, like that it's a viable option. Um, And even if it's just community college, but that they can do it, you know, 
Whereas I feel like in my generation, and even in my brother's generation, my sister's generation, that there were less of, of their, you know, the friends in that generation that really felt like that was possible. And I don't know why that's happened, but I'm happy that it's happened. Um, but but then I still see, you know, all the things that I write about, you know, with the about, you know, the men, you know, my brother and my friends that died, like all of the things that that um, that hounded them while they were alive, you know, and uh, and sort of shuttled them towards their deaths. Like I think that all those things still bear down. Well, I, you know, and and please forgive me if I'm misremembering this, but was it Ronald who committed suicide? Yep. Okay, so there's something that you wrote about him, uh, where you were taught because he was such a, a, a sweet, uh, like as you described him, such a sweet, charismatic kid, mm-hmm. and he knew how to play that role. I think is mm-hmm. what you said. But then you get to be trying to become a black man uh, in. America and you capitalize. I, I, you know, I notice, of course, that you capitalize uh, the B in black and the W in white. Uh, you know, in your descriptions. But you know, he got to the point where he had to transition into manhood, and he was lost, as I think so many young black men uh, often are, because it's you know, if you don't have the resources, it's very tough. It's just like an epidemic. Like, you know, how do you how how do we stop that? I think that. I don't know. I think that we have to, that we, ha- you know, the, that we have to change the message. You know, I think that, because I think that, you know, in the, in most, in most of the families, you know, and I'm talking about my family and, and, you know, the fam- and my friends' families and, you know, the families and the people in my community, like, it's not as if they're getting this message from their families that, that they're worth less, you know, um, but I feel like in the larger, you know, from 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 our society and from our like the cultural messages that they're getting, is that they are worth less. And I and for me, like, I don't know, like I think that that is one of the first things that that has to change. Like we just have to be conscious that that's the message that they're getting. I mean, especially like think about. Trayvon Martin, you know, think about Oscar Grant, think about, you know, every day it seems like there's a new article, uh, or you know, in the news about some young black man who has been shot and killed, you know, um, and, in, in, and either, you know, at the hands of his peers or, um, or, you know, in the most sensational cases by, you know, someone else. But I feel like the me- the message that we get from that over and over again, and that they get from that, and I think they feel very keenly, um, you know, is that they are worth less. You know, they're worth less, and that, you know, and that in the future, like that they that they're expendable in ways. You know, like economically, they're just pretty much expendable. You know, like I, re- I remember reading this interview that um, David Simon did once, where he was talking about the wire and talking about. The, the the illegal drug trade and he just said that um and it blew my it blew my mind when he said it not because I didn't know it but because it amazed me that a white person you know that a white man you know in a position of power was was saying it um because I'd never heard it said by a white man in a position of power and he said that you know that these young kids aren't stupid and that they and that the message that they're getting you know from you know the the larger culture is that they, that their work is expendable that they're not needed in this economy you know and so he says you know that that that's the reason that 
you know, that they, that it's, it's sort of a natural transition for them to take advantage of, you know, this shadow economy. Because well, they see that that's their, or they think that that's their, op, that's their option. Well, there's, so, I mean, there is money to be made. I mean, you know, it's, it, yeah. it, and, it, and there's more money to be, the, the reality is that there's more money to be made uh, doing that than doing these other jobs, which are yeah. paying nothing, you know, probably yeah. providing no benefits and are probably uh, sort of like soul crushing. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I want to talk about the uh, racism that you encountered as a child because you had a unique experience. Uh, you know, you got to go to um, an Episcopalian private school mm-hmm. where you were uh, one of the only uh, minorities, if not the only um, minority in your classes. And these scenes where you're describing, uh, what's his name? What's that kid's name? I want to <laughs> wring that kid's neck. <laughs> but the one who sat on your desk and started telling jokes. Topher, I think. Topher, yeah. I mean, it's just so uh, awful. And, uh, you know, at at the same time, it doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, I have to confess, I have relatives who could easily be Topher. And it's painful, you know, to admit that, but it's true. And I wonder, like, how do you... Like, how do you trust white people <laughs> how do you relate like what i mean you know what i'm saying like how can you possibly um like feel comfortable around white people having gone through that like how do you reconcile that because you did get out of the south and i do think it's different in different parts of the country at least in its mm-hmm. levels of intensity because i spent a lot of time in the south and i grew up in the north so i know that there's a difference um yeah. which is not to say that it's perfect elsewhere but it is mm-hmm. i think at a much higher pitch in the south Mm-hmm. Um, so you got out, you experienced different parts of the country and I'm assuming had different, uh, experiences of race. Uh, like wh- where do you stand on all that? Like, how do you make sense of, uh, white people? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think you, I don't think you ever trust wh- white people. You know, I mean, I talk about that briefly in the book that, that I feel like that, you know, part of the fallout from all of this is that, you is that there's a lack of trust you know there's a lack of trust in like you know with you know black people in regards to white people and then and then there's this like interpersonal lack of trust right with with relationships um and you know because you know because of what we've seen happen in our own families right so in addition to to the to the the sort of treatment that we're getting from outside world right um i you know i don't know i i um I'm aware of it all the time, you know, like if I'm in a place where I am the only black person in the room, you know, you can bet that I know, I know that I'm the only black person, and I'm very aware of the fact that I'm the only black person in the room. Um, It's just, I guess. And that has to happen to you somewhat more, I mean, in the literary community, uh, it's a pretty white world. Um, mm-hmm. It's getting better, hopefully, but I mean, yeah, you must find yourself in that situation or close to it with some frequency. Yeah, yep, all the time. Yeah, and so I, you know, it makes you. It, I mean, you just sort of learn how to, uh, you know, how to adjust and um, and how to navigate that, you know, because it is something that requires navigation. Um, I don't know, and it just makes me sort of wistful sometimes because I think of how awesome. It must be <laughs> so not PC, but I think of how incredible it must be 
be white in America, <laughs> right? So to like to live in this country and feel like everything is made for you, like everything is. I don't know. At least that, and maybe that's it's foolish of me to imagine it that way. But I just when from the outside looking in, I feel like it must be a great thing to 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 feel like you know like this world is totally is constructed to um to ca- not cater to you but to uh well, it's, it's a confers a great advantage you know yeah. it's just it just does it's you you know it's like it's one advantage that you're born with but like you know at the risk of getting too political like you know to kind of go circle back to what we were talking about earlier with like the current climate and the shutdown and all that um, I think things are obviously changing and that's at the heart of it because we're becoming more multicultural. And I think that scares a lot of people, a lot of white people, but you know, I, I'd like to be optimistic. I would hope that, um, you know, conversations like these and books like yours will help to, um, create more trust. And I think that, you know, in a society, and this I think crosses not only racial boundaries, but boundaries of class as well, you know, socioeconomically speaking, you know, there's a lot of mistrust when there's a lot of inequality. And I think that it's dangerous when, you know, a very few, you know, the very few have uh, a very lot and everybody else is really uh, struggling. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you in all respects. So maybe I should rephrase that and say that, you know, that it must be amazing to be like white and wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe that, maybe that's the distinction that I need to make. Yeah. You know, and it, the thing that, you know, the thing that's so interesting too, because, uh, I think by most standards, uh, I'm that, you know, I come from a family. My father was the first person in his family to go to college. So he's comes from a very working class background. My grandparents didn't go to college, um, but my father did very well. Um, and even so, like as I was reading your book, this is another thing that moved me is the fact that, you know, all of these things uh, that you uh, experience, all of these losses, um, or most of them anyway, I have corollaries for. You know, like uh, I have a friend who's committed suicide. I've, I've had another friend that was lost to addiction. Um, my dad's sister was killed by a drunk driver. You know, like, so I don't know. You know, it's it's the same but different. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot that connects us just as human beings. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, there, there's no amount of wealth that can necessarily insulate you from human dysfunction. It might just come in That's different true. forms, you know. That's very true. Um, yeah. So, and maybe that's a good thing to realize, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that's like a, you know, that separates uh, or diminishes the separation, you know, or the yeah. sense of separation. Yeah. Thank you for telling me that because I, I don't think that I had, you know, I knew when I was done with the book, I knew that that was part of what I wanted it to do, right? Like when, re- when readers, you know, encountered it, that I wanted it to speak to them, you know, on a to speak to them on that level, right? Just on a level of just being a human being and suffering through loss and suffering through grief. I mean, that's a universal experience, right? Mm. Um, you know, living with death and dealing with death. And so I knew that I wanted the book to, um, that I wanted the book to, to, to communicate, you know, that. Well, there's, I mean, look, there's a universe, like uh, two things occur to me. First of all, uh, I need to get it together. I have it so good compared to so many. Um, so it reminds me of that. The other thing that it reminds me of is just that there's universality, you know, with these experiences, mm-hmm. grief in particular. And uh, 
one of the things that I uh, kept thinking as I was reading your book is that uh, I feel like human beings, uh, generally speaking, don't necessarily prepare ourselves for grief as well as we might, and uh, we don't necessarily acknowledge it or acknowledge the closeness of uh, chaos or mortality. You know, just it, it, th- these things touch us all eventually, and. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, because it's so painful to consider and because it's so painful to experience, I think we might think that we'd be better off just ignoring it. But I think actually we we would suffer less if we uh, looked at it. You know, what, uh, Thomas Lynch wrote a great book about that. Have you read it? He's um, it's a book of essays. I can't remember the name. I think it might be the Undertake, Undertaking, the Undertaker. Maybe he's a poet. Well, he's a poet. And he's also an undertaker in Michigan. I took actually took classes with him at the University of Michigan, and um, and because you know he's a poet, but he's also an undertaker. It's a family business, therefore he you know wrote this collection of essays about death, and that's one of the things that he, you know, one of the points that he I think that he's trying attempting to make in in one of the essays, right? That um, you know, that we are not able to um, to prepare ourselves for it, and you know, in that American culture, I don't know that we are. That we're that we do sanitize death and separate ourselves from it, and um, and I don't think that he thinks that that's a good thing. So yeah, that's another book that his book definitely does that. So uh, you know, your childhood is so rich. You have uh, you know such great recall with all this stuff. Uh, I'm wondering if you feel like you're done with memoir. Do you think you have more in you? Are you going to be relieved to go back to uh, the land of make-believe and write another yes. novel after this? <laughs> like, yes, I am. Okay. I, have I, to... I never want to write another memoir ever again. <laughs> this was it. was it. too painful. I just don't – I. it was very painful. I mean, even though I think that, you know, that, in, that it, I think – I do believe in the book. I do think that it was something that I needed to do, you know, but I just – but I think – I mean, when I think about my life at this point, like I said, I'm only 36, but I think about my life at this point, and I think, okay, I think that that might be the only memoir that I have in me. Now, who knows? Maybe I might, you know, live to be 70 and discover that I have another one. But right now, I do, I would, I do not want to write another one. Well, I, well, I think the one that you did write uh, is excellent. I congratulate you on it. I congratulate you on all of your success. It's amazing. Uh, and. You. Uh, I wish you the best of luck on the rest of this tour uh, with your baby. Um, and I don't know. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Definitely. Thank you. All right, you guys. There she is. That's Jasmine Ward. Go get her memoir. It is called Men We Reaped. It is available now from Bloomsbury. You can find her online uh, on Twitter where her handle is at Jesmimi. J-E-S-M-I-M-I. You can also find her on the Facebook. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Squarespace. Don't forget to visit squarespace.com for a free trial and 10% off. And when you go there, remember to enter the promo code OTHER10. That's how you get 10% off. Once again, that promo code is OTHER10. And uh, thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And please don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It is the best and most elegant way to listen to this program And it is available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that. 
If you haven't done it already, the app itself is free. And, uh, you know, just to uh, clarify a little bit more, you do realize that there are some great episodes uh, in the archives, correct? Uh, conversations with writers like Ben Fountain, Cheryl Strayed, George Saunders, Maria Semple, Sheila Hetty, Lauren Stein, Lydia Millett, Kate Zambrino. Uh, the list goes on. So you should get the app. It's, it's how you access the archives. And, uh, you know, it, it's all right there on your phone or your uh, other mobile device, and you can take it with you anywhere you go. So uh, you can take me with you anywhere you go. What could be better than that? Uh, otherwise, awards. Are there podcast awards? And uh, if so, are they called the potties? Please tell me they're called the potties. And please uh, let me win one. I just want to have a potty on my shelf. <laughs> it's probably my only chance at being an award winner. So if you're out there and uh, you're into this kind of thing, can you please start the potties? Is that too much to ask? Please remember that Gertrude Stein studied under Henry James while at Radcliffe and that Ernest Hemingway, E.E. E. Cummings, John Dos Passos, and DeShiel Hammett were all volunteer ambulance drivers in World War One. That is it for now. Thanks again to Jasmine Ward. Go get her book, Men We Reaped. Uh, it's terrific. And I will be back with you uh, in a few days. Assuming, of course, that you uh, will be back with me. Because the truth of the matter is that it's all up to you. I can't control this situation. I understand that. I'm comfortable with it. I accept it. So, you know. I'll be back on Wednesday. Uh, maybe you... Maybe you will download me. <laughs> <laughs>